Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Censored, the podcast where I read the dirty books so you don't have to. My name is Aoife Vrithnach, historian and filthy-minded reader. If you want to support the show, please tell a friend to listen. Or rate and review the pod on Apple. It really does help people find me and join me on this mad journey through the Irish blacklist. This is part two of my deep dive into the McGahran affair, which kicked off when his novel The Dark was banned in 1965. If you haven't listened to part one, do that now so you know exactly how rude The Dark was. In both episodes, I have three lovely contributors. Dr. Anna Tikal and Dr. Ellen Scheibler are editing a new critical edition of The Dark for the US market, while Dr. John Singleton has written a PhD on John McGahran. They offer some great insights on the man and the artist because I want to talk about how this unwanted celebrity affected him. The Dark was a really daring book to write in the early 1960s and as this episode shows, McGarren paid very dearly for his courage. Archbishop John Charles McQuaid of Dublin, the baddest bishop in the land, has a starring role in this episode. He is the ultimate clerical bogeyman for contemporary Ireland. He represents everything that Irish society now hates about its Catholic past. McQuaid was extremely conservative and very authoritarian. Photos of him in his silk and lace vestments, walking between rows of kneeling laity, will bring on a rage at the deference given to one man just because of his job. We know he was very close to Eamon de Valera, the most significant politician of the 20th century. If we want to, we can see McQuaid's malign influence on all that made Ireland repressive. No contraception, no sex education, no divorce, no abortion. And of course, draconian censorship. He did have a thing about dirty books. The censor's efforts to ban pulp fiction in the 1950s can be traced directly to McQuaid, who hated cheap, lurid paperbacks. In The McGahran Affair, McQuaid ensured that the author was fired from his teaching post because the book was banned. But then there's spineless union reps and callous civil servants in the mix too, so it's not all the bishop. 
The story of the political consequences of the McGahern affair is just wild. The story of how it affected the author himself is heartbreaking. So grab a cuppa and we'll start at the very beginning, when 260 copies of The Dark arrived in Dublin from the UK. The political brouhaha began in May 1965, when a shipment of the dark was seized by customs officers. Customs were not in the habit of stopping entire shipments of books from reaching a bookseller. This made the news because it was unprecedented. Typically, customs referred one copy of a book to the board, but the rest of the consignment could be sold freely until the censors made their decision. One of the funny things about the system was that books were banned after they had been legally available. This was taken to ludicrous lengths in the case of Madonna's sex book in 1992. I covered this at the beginning of this season. Just to recap, her book had sold out by the time the censors banned it. So the seizure of the dark in May 1965 was pretty bizarre. Following newspaper reports on the customs decision, Jack Lynch, the finance minister, was asked in the Doyle about what happened. In his prepared answer, he neatly sidestepped the question. But when he was pressed and went off script, he gave away some information that shows how censorship worked at the time. This exchange is worth reading out, and it's between Jack Lynch and three other TDs. Dr O'Connell. Will every book which arrives in the country be held by the customs officer? Mr Lynch. Not necessarily. Mr Dunn. How does he tell that this is suspect? Mr Lynch. I am sure the customs officer does not live in the clouds. Mr Lindsay. How could he form an opinion without reading the book? Mr Lynch. The first sight is very often a great help. Since page one of McGahern's book had fuck written in it, it seems like that's the most likely explanation for why it was stopped. But I think the other response... I am sure the customs officer does not live in the clouds, is extremely telling. The men on the border were not machines. They were men who read and talked and listened like everyone else. And McGahern's book had been advertised. It was not appearing out of nowhere. He was a young author on the make in Ireland, so his work was eagerly anticipated. In promoting the book, a short excerpt of the first few chapters had been published, under the title the four-letter word. Obviously, this was a reference to fuck on page one. So if anyone was keeping an eye on McGahern, they would know what the book contained before it even arrived in Dublin. But I think this sentence is also very suggestive of influence. The customs did not live in the clouds, but were men prey to influence from powerful forces. And you don't get much more powerful than the Archbishop of Dublin, John Charles McQuaid, By 1965, his control over the censorship board had reduced, compared to the early 50s when all members were sympathetic to his lordship's views. Once the government replaced the board with slightly more liberal appointees in the late 50s, you could argue that censorship lessened. And some books did get through. I've previously read Broderick's The Fugitives from 1962, and frankly, I'm shocked it wasn't banned. McGahern's The Barracks also wasn't banned in 1963. The total number of books being banned was dropping each year. 
so it looked like censorship wasn't as thorough and complete as it had been. But the decision to stop the dark at the border is so unusual that it speaks of very powerful forces at work indeed. Could it be that McQuaid influenced the customs officers? A Dublin journalist wrote that a well-known ecclesiastical figure read the dark and pitched it behind the fire when he finished it. Was this a reference to the dreaded Archbishop? If anyone has found proof in the McQuaid archive that the Archbishop contacted customs, they haven't written about it yet. And, in fairness, the archive is 820 boxes. There's a lot to go through. Thing is, McQuaid had form in stopping the importation of goods he didn't like. The most infamous example is that a word from him stopped a Dublin pharmacy from ordering tampons from the UK. And that was 1944, by the way. His whisper networks even stretched across the Irish Sea. He kept tabs on plays in London that might move to Irish theatres. For more on that, check out my Ginger Man episode. It's a wild story. But if McQuaid had personally stopped the dark, it would be in his archive. He wrote everything down because he believed he was always, always right. On the other hand, the Irish state never writes anything down because politicians and civil servants are afraid of being caught out. Whisper networks and back channels are also part of the state's power, but good luck finding proof of that. So I don't know why the shipment of 260 books was stopped, but it shows someone had their eye on McGaharan. He was most definitely singled out. The board made their decision quickly, and on the 1st of June 1965, the dark was officially blacklisted. The debate in newspapers heated up. Letters to the editor of the Irish Times questioned the ban, and the writers said that they had already read the book. It may not have been on the bookshelves, but motivated readers were ordering it from the UK or maybe crossing the border to buy it in Northern Ireland. Customs did check the post for banned material, but there's a limit to what they could stop. Even those who hated it admitted they'd read it. This is part of an editorial from the Western People, a regional newspaper serving the west of Ireland. The editor wrote this about the dark. Despite patches of delicate writing, Mr. McGahern's novel is a sickly, depressive and morbidly despairing study of Irish rural society. It is repressively and unrelievedly concerned with the study of onanism. It depicts more by insinuation than outright comment, a pederastic father and a soliciting priest with a boy housekeeper. And it undermines thoroughly, by its shadings and circumstantial indications, the sincerity of a few glimmers of light let in to relieve the unrelieved darkness of the theme. All right, so he didn't like it. But he had bought the book and read it. So points to McGahern here. He had also just given anyone reading the paper a fairly good summary of what was in it. This is kind of ironic because he's trying to prove that the dark is not suitable for serialisation in a newspaper. Nosy people all over the west of Ireland must have loved this succinct summary. This writer believed the book was a danger to the youth the usual argument advanced to justify censorship. I'm going to read another sentence out because it's delicious. Irish parents generally counted a small sacrifice, in contrast with what they give up for their children in other spheres, to waive any such private reading inclinations in favour of an effective dyke 
to hold back the flood of filth published for the sake of gain. Real craw-thumping stuff here. I'm sure McGarren's publishers wanted to make money, but they're hardly coining it from high-end literary fiction. This sentence conflates literary publishing with commercial, high-volume pulp fiction or magazines. While all of this back and forth is happening in the press, McGarren was silent. He wasn't even in Ireland. He had been living abroad temporarily since 1964 because he was on leave from his job as a national school teacher. He said nothing publicly about the ban and refused to add his name to petitions or appeals. On the 11th of October 1965, he reported for work in Skull Owen Bashta in Clontarf, Dublin City. The headmaster told him he no longer had a job there, reading out a letter from the manager stating that McGarren was, quote, barred from entering the classroom, unquote. Four weeks later, he returned to speak to the manager, Father Carton, who started the meeting with this legendary line. What entered your head to write that book? Such a schmozzle you caused that I couldn't take you back after that. The priest then advised McGarren to put his marital situation right with a religious marriage ceremony. By the end of the meeting, McGarren was in no doubt that Archbishop McQuaid, the patron of the school, had asked Father Carton to fire him. Now I know you're thinking, what the fuck has his marriage got to do with anything? Before we go any further, a very brief explainer on the structure of the Irish education system because it helps to understand why marriage was in the mix at all. Irish primary schools are called national schools. You might think this means they are owned, operated and managed by the government, but you couldn't be more wrong. Education in Ireland is a great example of that awful management bullshit phrase, public-private partnership. A national school is established by a patron who appoints the board of management and the manager to run the school. A patron decides the ethos of a school. In practice, ethos is a code word for religion or the lack of it. Therefore, Catholic bishops patronise Catholic schools and Church of Ireland bishops are patrons of Anglican schools. There's a Muslim national school in Dublin under the patronage of the Islamic Foundation of Ireland. Recently, non-religious schools have been established under the patronage of Educate Together. If you could jump through all the hoops, nothing would stop you from starting a school under the patronage of the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. Whatever the ethos, the patron and the board of management run the school. The government inspects the schools and the teachers work, but does not adjudicate on matters of religion. And lastly, and most importantly for McGarren, his salary was paid by the state, but his job contract was with the board of management of Skyl Owen Bashta. In the peculiar Irish system, it's difficult to pinpoint where the government has authority over school patrons or managers. Each school is an independently run, privately owned entity that is supervised and funded by central government. McQuaid was the patron. He controlled the manager who had the right to terminate McGarren's contract. And that's why the Department of Education could not and would not intervene in McGarren's case. So the reason McGarren lost his job was not because he was a crap teacher, but he had offended morally against the ethos. 
McQuaid hated the dark and used the author's personal life as a convenient excuse. McGahran had gotten married in Paris in 1964 in a registry office ceremony to a Protestant divorced woman from Finland, Aniki Lasky. This flagrant disregard for Catholic teachings on marriage did not adhere to the ethos of the school. This sort of surveillance of the personal life of staff was common. Women who got pregnant outside of marriage lost their jobs too. Obviously, gay teachers couldn't come out without serious consequence. It sucked. By making an enemy of McQuaid, McGahran had lost his job in Clontarf. And since the Archbishop was the patron of all Catholic schools in the vast Dublin Archdiocese, he was unemployable in Dublin City. For a man who had kept his head down and not made any fuss about the ban, this was a bitter blow. But McGahran had one last chance to get his job back. He was a member of the Irish National Teachers' Organisation, the largest teaching union in the country. Unfortunately, his meeting with the Executive Council did not go well. Some of the men were drunk, having fortified themselves with whiskey before the meeting. The General Secretary of the Union, DJ Kelleher, said they couldn't help him. And this is the ridiculous thing that McGahran recalled being told. If it was just the old book, maybe, maybe, we might have been able to do something for you. But with marrying this foreign woman, you've turned yourself into a hopeless case entirely. Disgraceful stuff. What pigs they were. Personally, I think Kelleher was lying. The Union was afraid to take on McQuaid. Not only was he the patron of hundreds of schools, he had personally intervened on the side of the INTO in the past. In 1944 and 62, he had intervened to mediate between the government and teachers. McGahran was told privately that McQuaid had said he would support the Union in upcoming pay talks if they stayed out of the McGahran affair. The Archbishop had huge leverage with the Union and he wasn't afraid to use it. By the end of 1965, McGahran was out of options. He had to accept that his job was gone for good. I'm really interested to know how all this controversy about himself, his job and his marriage affected McGahran. Anna Tikal had some really interesting insights to offer me. He was, I think he was shocked but not surprised, perhaps that he could he knew he basically couldn't get a job in Dublin after all of this. He'd become a cause celeb in sort of in a way that was impractical for regular life, I suppose. He he was he said um that it was in the papers every day, my photograph was all over the place, people were arguing my case on the late late show, which is how you know people are really talking about things. But that he went away to England and you know and didn't write another novel for, didn't even write, said he didn't write a thing for three, for about three or four years. And he, by, by his own account, really loved teaching. So he, it was sort of a two-part glow that the, the coming back and being fired was what, um, in many ways, was more of a blow than the actual sort of banning notice itself. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. 
That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. He never admitted it, but I'm sure McGahrin guessed his book would be banned. But surely he never expected to lose his job like this. In the past, artists had suffered financially from censorship. But this is the first example of a writer losing a permanent pensionable job because they wrote a banned book. And the job controversy kept McGahrin in the headlines. The inexplicable targeting of the book in May 65 was joined by the clear evidence that the author had been victimised by his employer. The school and the union gave various excuses about subscriptions and contracts and technical details, but these were clearly paper thin. One letter to the Irish Times boldly called out McQuaid's role in the matter. Now, in those days, newspapers didn't write editorials slagging off bishops, so there's no condemnation of McQuaid from the paper itself. I think it's fair to say, though, that educated, thinking readers knew that McQuaid was at the heart of it. Because he lost his job, McGahern didn't return to Ireland for some years. Leaving in this fashion was an unexpected wrench for him that doesn't really compare to the voluntary exiles of other famous authors, as Ellen Scheible explained to me. In thinking about his relationship with Ireland, I, I think about McGahern all the time in relationship to Joyce, and I think about why it was so painful for him uh, to to have this kind of reaction to the dark. It was clearly painful for him. It wasn't just painful for him because of his economic crisis that maybe ensued, but it was it was painful for him as like a, a thinker and an artist. And I think in in some ways that pain comes from from feeling like he was in some way exiled in his own country, um, kind of cut off from his art in this way. When I think about this in connection to, say, someone like Joyce, who really struggled with the publication of Dubliners, Joyce had already set up his entire lifestyle on the continent before this. Like, he, he wanted to come back to Ireland. It's unclear that he wanted to actually live there again. But he wanted to be able to come back, and he, but he, he did not see his his exile as that severance that you get with McGahern. And so for him to come back, you know, years later and and still continue then to to become the writer that he became, I, I think there was a sort of a great deal of strength and ego involved in that in a good way. Uh, because I think I think it seemed to me that 
it was a very immediate, very local, uh, very personal hurt that he felt. In February 1966, McGahern finally broke his silence, giving two long interviews to the Irish Times and the Irish Independent. The Independent interview never made it to print. It was spiked. Was it the long arm of the Archbishop, or a politician, or a senior civil servant who had tapped the editor on the shoulder? McGahern explained all about his meetings with Father Carton. All the grubby nastiness he had endured was laid bare. But by April 1966, McGahern was finished talking about it publicly. He decided not to appeal the ban because he didn't believe it would succeed. And he never became an outspoken critic of censorship in the mould of Sean O'Fueloin or Edna O'Brien. O'Brien was also in the headlines that year because yet another of her books was banned. She was the figurehead at the inaugural meeting of the Censorship Reform Society in December 1966. Being a clever media operator, she made headlines the day before when she arrived in Dublin airport with copies of her own banned books. Customs obligingly confiscated them and bingo, headlines were made. Masterstroke of publicity. She was such a badass. The Reform Society had also invited McGahern to come along, but he was wary, afraid he would be used. He was right, of course. His notorious case was good publicity that showed up how crazy the censors were. This first meeting was packed, and people were turned away. The numbers were really impressive, but hardly anyone wanted to pay an actual subscription to the society. People objected to censorship, but maybe not that much. Even as the Reform Society started up, the government was looking at the Censorship of Publications Act. The minister was Brian Lenehan, one of the younger generation of politicians that were moving into positions of power in Fianna Fáil. Just a tiny bit of info on the political party that is Fianna Fáil. It has been the most powerful political party in the state since it first took office in 1932. It was in power for 15 years straight, between 1932 and 1948. To scare you even more, from 1932 to 2011, it was in government for 61 of those 79 years. Ireland was a one-party state, by democratic choice, for a long time. It's no wonder censorship was accepted. Nearly everyone had the same political opinions anyway. Anyway, Lenehan was a bright young thing in 1960s Fianna Fáil. He had already loosened up film censorship in 1965, when he appointed a new Liberal Appeals Board. That simple trick of changing the personnel had already been tried with literary censorship, but it hadn't worked. Even the less conservative boards were happy to ban Edna O'Brien and John McGahern. More drastic action was needed. If this change pulled the rug out from under a vocal lobby group that was making the government look bad, all the better. So Lenehan drafted a bill where all books would be unbanned after 20 years. In the Doyle, there was a lot of support for a lower figure, so he changed it to 12 years. No one in the Doyle mentioned McGahern or O'Brien, not even once. Everyone spoke of the injustice of banning O'Fueloin or Shaw or Joyce. But there was total silence on the fate of contemporary authors. I'm sorry to say if you're looking for excitement that the parliamentary debates of the 60s are not the place for them. Politics was much less adversarial and deputies 
barely acknowledged public opinion existed. So it was all very polite and uncontroversial, with everyone talking nicely and making reasonable points. Lenehan's bill became law in 1967 and 5,000 books were immediately unbanned. The floodgates of filth had opened. But most of the books were out of print, so it didn't exactly change the bookshops of Ireland overnight. And the board proved it wasn't going away when it instantly rebanned J.P. Dunleavy's The Ginger Man. This Irish-authored book was so indecent that it was given another 12 years in censorship prison. Censorship was obviously much diminished, but it was far from over. The Dark remained banned because 12 years hadn't passed since it was blacklisted. McGahern was reluctant to personally appeal the ban, but by 1970 his publishers were happy to chance their luck. They succeeded, and on the 3rd of September, The Dark was legally sold for the first time in Ireland. Hilariously, the publishers were anxious to assure readers that the book was not, quote, cut or expurgated in any way, unquote. No one was going to be shortchanged in the filth department. With the book freely circulating, that seems like the end of it. But it wasn't for McGahran. He was forever associated with this great censorship scandal and frequently asked about it in his long career. He returned to Ireland in the mid-70s, to a country whose sexual culture had loosened up considerably. Believe it or not, there was even an Irish magazine deliberately modelled on Playboy, as Anna explained to me. It's a, the timing is interesting too, because there's a really big difference culturally between Ireland in 1965 and Ireland in 1975, which is about when he came back. That's a huge decade in terms of a sea change in, in cultural attitudes. He was, um, so when he comes back, he publishes a short story in a magazine called Man's Man Alive, which is and the sort of aborted attempt at having an Irish playboy. Um, and there's this really bizarre image of the cover of this magazine with this sort of dirty magazine cover and then new story by John McGarren um, at the bottom of the cover. It's very, very shocking when you think about what he went through um, to get after losing his job after the dark. I do think writing for a Playboy-style magazine shows you just the type of cheeky bowl fella he could be. He couldn't stop pushing the bounds of what was allowed in writing about sex. In 1979, he published a novel called The Pornographer. This is kind of an odd book, because it has whole sections of actual, honest-to-God pornography in it, intercut with genuine literature. I let John Singleton explain the plot to you because it's mental. It's a weird, weird book. And it, it, it's even kind of, it'd be weird by anyone's standards, but it's weird by kind of McGarren's standards, who's sort of set out his stall as, you know, the the recorder, the keeper of the flame of rural Ireland, you know, and the, the traditions of rural Ireland. And then he gives you this incredibly bizarre book, um, primarily based in Dublin City. Um, the protagonist is a bourgeois pornographer who's you know he's a kind of a new age Sebastian Dangerfield um a rocking around Dublin in kind of goo Dublin of the late 70s you know getting the leg over everything that moves and chasing skirt up and down the city and then turning it into pornographic stories which he then sells he sells to his buddy uh 
you know, another kind of, his buddy's kind of a, a Buck Mulligan type character, tweed coat and everything. And, you know, and there, the two of them are running this pornography magazine. <laughs> and it's it's bizarre. And then, and meanwhile, his granny or his aunt is dying of cancer in the hospital. And some days he goes to visit her and he's sneaking her bottles of brandy. Then he impregnates the woman, abandons her. She has to go to England. It's a bizarre book. And I, I actually think the pornography is great. I think it's an incredible book. Um, if not his best, is certainly most underappreciated um, book. I really do think it's fantastic. And doing, you know, really, really interesting and experimental things. I don't know how successful it is, but trying at least to get at something really, really interesting uh, that must be in some way connected to the banning of the dark, which is trying to get at the difference between pornography and the language of pornography and the, the artifice of pornography, the necessary falsehood uh, and the fakeness of pornography as it existed in, in the written form in this, or as it exists you know, on new porn now. And contrasting that with, with something real, with, with, you know, sexual and emotional attraction between two individuals, with love between two individuals, with the development and breakdown of a relationship, trying to differentiate the ways we talk about pornography and the way we talk the corrupting language and all of the things that those censors were afraid of and trying to represent the truth of knowing the other of knowing the beloved of representing that secret life that exists behind and um, the facade of the other person that we never really get access to no matter how close we are to them emotionally physically and as much as you are in love with that person or as much as you share with that person there is there is a secret other and there is the truth that you will never be able to quite get at. I read The Pornographer when I was a teenager, 16, 17, before I had read any real porn, because I didn't even know where to look for porn at that stage. We used to find ripped up pages from dirty magazines in the hedges. That was the extent of it. Now, I think that book might provoke some interesting thoughts on our porn-saturated society. That McGahran was bold enough to write this book says a lot about the effect of the ban on him. He really hated that the dark was associated with filth. I like to think he wrote the pornographer to prove that he knew exactly what smut was. It was a good way of proving he was not, and never had been, a pornographic writer. We can argue that the ban affected his writing for years, but McGahran was never angry in public. As was his style, he downplayed the effect of the ban and the scandal. When he was asked by Rosa Gonzalez if his enforced exile affected his writing, this is what he said. I don't know. I didn't write very much, but then I had no money, I was living in London, and I was doing mostly a thing called relief teaching. It was very hard, and I used to be too tired to write. But whether I would have written or not, I don't know for there are times when I haven't written at all in my life. Although I don't think it has ever gone as long as that, for I didn't write a thing for five or six years. He says I don't know a lot in this piece, but I think it's clear that he was affected by the exile. He had no money, he was too tired from trying to earn money, his work was short-term and temporary. It sounds miserable, 
His first novel, After the Dark, was published in 1974. For comparison, there are just two years between The Barracks and The Dark. Maybe the censor's ban and the archbishop's anger temporarily derailed the work of one of the best Irish writers of the late 20th century. So I'm going to end now, but just one final bit of information that shows how the Irish state holds grudges. Because he'd been a permanent teacher, McGahern was entitled to a pension once he reached 60 years of age. He didn't receive it until shortly before his death, when he was aged 72. Apparently, it took high-level lobbying to get him what he was due. Shameful stuff. From unions and employers judging his marital arrangements to the government putting technicalities before natural justice. All because he dared to write a book that was too uncomfortably close to the truth about sex in Ireland. McQuaid is huge in this story. He was determined to punish McGahern for a book that detailed masturbation, paedophilia, incest and a very dodgy priest. That creepy moment where the priest climbs into the teenager's bed must have pissed him off no end. We now know that by the 1960s, McQuaid was being much more lenient with priests who were accused of sexual assault. For all that he was uncompromising on contraception, he let his priests get away with terrible abuses. The subject matter of the dark must have been incendiary for the Archbishop. I do think that partly explains his vendetta against McGahern, but I can't say if he was behind the book being stopped at the border. I haven't seen enough proof either way, so I'm holding back on that. I suspect we'll never know who made the call because there won't be a paper trail. And I do think blaming bishops is the lazy thing to do. After all, the censorship board is part of the state, not the church. The state and wider society gave the Roman Catholic Church a lot of influence. The bishops didn't have to fight too hard for it. Next episode will be a lot of fun, I promise. I need a lift after all of that. So I'm doing a general episode on the Irish language and censorship. The law applied only to publications in English. But you know, it's never as simple as that. Irish was held up as the symbol of the pure, untarnished, sacred grail by those who loved censorship. Of course, the Irish language has as much filth as any other human tongue. So how did that work? Were books in Irish entirely uncensored? Well... No, but it's complicated, and I can't wait to tell you how it worked. Till next time, keep your hands clean and your minds filthy. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.